0: Isaiah chapter 11, we will magnify, we will magnify the Lord enthroned in Zion. A natural place to go after singing these words would be a passage of Scripture like Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion's and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze; their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the peoples of the east." They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. So there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. When a preacher has to preach on a text like that, you are acutely conscious that all you can do is rob it of its power and its resonance. So let's pray that God will help us, help me not to do that. Father, we thank you for these marvelous words. And here we are studying this chapter. And Andrew and Heather and their family are here. They're here to remind us that what Isaiah prophesied 700 years ago before Jesus Christ came that one day he would stand tall in the world and be a beacon, a signal to the nations of the earth. Thank you for that divine coincidence to bring this passage in Scripture alive. May it be a great encouragement to us all and a great challenge, for that is the dynamic of your word, both wonderfully reassuring and so challenging, so inviting. Help us not to rob these words of their power, for these written words are the very words of Almighty God. And we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, we've been studying on Sunday mornings together here the book of Isaiah, at least chapters 1 to 12. There are two major things that these prophetic books like Isaiah do. One, and this, I guess, is the familiar line, they point us forward to future events. Isaiah points forward to events on the near horizon of his own day. He wrote... These words, he preached these messages around 740 to 700 B.C. And he looked forward on the near horizon to the conquering of God's people by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He points forward to a further horizon. Yesterday, I was reading a book about Scotland's Monroe's. And uh, the writer was saying, when you climb up, many of the Munro's, you think you're at the summit, but you're not. There's another ridge and another ridge and another ridge. And Isaiah goes to the near horizon and then the further horizon. And the further horizon is the breaking into the world someday and in some form. They didn't understand then what it would be, the everlasting kingdom of God and a Messiah king. And then Isaiah points not simply to that far horizon. There is yet another mountain peak. And that is the return of the Messiah at the very end of time and a new heavens and a new earth. So prophecy points forward to future events. But there is another whole dimension to this kind of Bible literature to this kind of material that uh, we have been studying and we read today, and that is an immediacy or a, a message to God's people then and still. And that message, in light of what Isaiah reveals about who God is, not least the message of this prophetic book, in light of what we read today, is trust me. Obey me, be loyal to me, live in covenant fidelity with me, says the Lord. Live by my light, live by my word. I guess the key verse in the book would be in chapter 7. We've seen that, verse 9b, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And that message comes to people in history in different ways at different times. I guess a book like Isaiah in the western part of the globe 200 years ago would have less power in the sense of do not desert me than it does now. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Last week we saw that expressed in a very different way. When all manner of things crowd in upon you as a church and as individuals, seeking to drag like a rip current your firmness of faith out from under your feet, lean on me, God says. Lean on me. Lean on me. Now, last week, we looked at the big section from chapter 9, verse 8, through to the end of chapter 10. And chapter 9, verse 8 to 10, 4, just have a glance at that, is an urgent message to God's people to repent and turn back to him because of their pride. If not, his judgment, his wrath would be directed against them. They did not listen and judgment came at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the rod of his anger, God's agent in bringing judgment. It is, as we said last week, a shocking thought that behind the stuff that assails us as God's people in Isaiah's day, it was the Assyrian army. In our day, in the West, secularism, that is what assails us. Maybe God is behind it in judgment against his people. Maybe behind the advance of secularism in the West today, Almighty God is pushing it in. He may well be To judge his people. Or at a personal level, the tough stuff that comes our way in life may have God behind it in judgment. And as we said last week, if God is against us, the greatest danger is that we turn away from him rather than turn to him with repentant hearts. It is shocking, but it's reassuring to know that whatever is going on, God is sovereign now, all of this, tough times for the people of God are for a purpose, that they might be firm in their faith again, trusting and being loyal and loving to their God, secure in Him and in nothing else. And, of course, the urgent message in our day, in our culture in the West, is as we face the rampant tide of secularism, we either do two things. We either get on board the river that runs against the Word of God or we turn to God and we trust Him and we obey Him like we perhaps have never done before. And uh, chapter 10, as we saw, speaks of a faithful remnant who did. And the end of chapter 10 is pretty bleak. Just look at it with me, 1033-34. to 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The grade and height will be hewn down, and the lofty one will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. It is a powerful picture. If you've driven past a forest that has been cut down and cleared or razed, you get the picture. It is a wasteland of gnarled roots and felled trees, mighty trees felled. There is obliqueness too, when one considers the remnant of God's people. Back then, after the Assyrians had come in judgment against Israel and the Babylons had come in judgment against Judah, God brought out of the fire of judgment a faithful remnant, but it was weak, it was small, it was fragile. The faithful remnant who listened in Isaiah's day to God's word through God's prophet must have been sobered by these words, In chapter 10, look out at the forest. It's felled. There are simply gnarled roots left. It's pretty bleak. And then a shaft of light breaks in. As you walk across the forest floor, as you stumble and trip over the gnarled roots, and you get caught up in the tangled branches All of a sudden, you come upon a little green shoot. Chapter 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, with that picture of the devastated, felled forest in your mind, the nangled, tangled stumps and a little green shoot it is small it looks weak but growing that little green shoot is the sovereign hand of an almighty god who out of these bleak days and out of this tangled mess would bring a messiah now how long does it take a tiny green shoot to grow into a mighty tree Ten minutes, please God, that's what I'd like. In my lifetime, please God, I would love to see things radically turn around. Isaiah doesn't let on that the gap between chapter 10, verse 34, and chapter 11, verse 1 is 700 years. That's how long it took that green shoot to grow into a mighty tree. And every second of these 700 years, God knew exactly what he was doing. Now, there is a wealth of applications off the back of that. Let me say simply this, that God's timing is his timing. We can ask him to speed up, but if he doesn't, we simply need to trust him. He is not panicking, and nor should we. Now, that's the context. Now, you'll see on the sheet lots of headings. And uh, rest assured, we'll be done by lunchtime. First verses 1 to 5, the character of the Messiah and how he rules. Now, we today are 2,700 years down the track from Isaiah. And we know because we have the full, the complete revelation of God in Scripture, the Old and New Testaments, we have the perspective of all these years of salvation history. We know that Isaiah was speaking here about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and with him God's universal and everlasting kingdom. Let me read again with us verses 1 to 5. Please follow along with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch From the roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins the character of the messiah is that of unparalleled wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and fear of the lord and righteousness and faithfulness And the rule of the Messiah is discerning and just and powerful. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is uniquely qualified to rule the world and therefore to submit to his rule is wise and is safe. Remember that image from chapter 10 God's people leaning on the Lord. On him we can utterly depend. His rule is wise. It is safe, it is strong, it is eternal. By eternal, I mean that much of what Isaiah speaks of here has happened. The Messiah Jesus has come. He died, was raised, ascended, was crowned, and he reigns. But the full realization of his rule will not be seen until his return in demonstrable might and power, where justice will be done in his final judgment on all people. And so, for example, verse 4, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked, is quoted by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, referring to the final judgment when Jesus returns. In our day, we are still waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. In might and in power. And as you and I gaze out on our world, not least the events of the last few days, we find ourselves crying with Christians through the ages Come, Lord Jesus. Now, these opening verses that characterize and describe the character of the Messiah speak of the Spirit of the Lord on him and in him. And that is the language the New Testament uses to describe Christians. For to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the same Spirit of the Lord. God's will for our lives is that we be sanctified, made holy like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his Son, So as you read Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5, you read not only of the character of the Messiah, but you read of the character of the Christian, the traits of the indwelling spirit lived out bit by bit in a human soul, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge. Fear of the Lord, righteousness, and faithfulness. But that is the character of Christ that we desire to be seen in us more and more. How will it happen? Well, back to the message of Isaiah. If we are firm in our faith, if we walk in his light, if we live by his word, if we trust and obey, if we lean all our weight on the Lord. The character of the Messiah and how he rules, verses 1 through five, Second, 6 to 9, the peace of the Messiah's global kingdom. These are very familiar verses. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf. The little boy shall stick his hand into the viper's pit and pick up the snake, and it will not bite him. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. Verse 9, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, these verses do not describe our world. Television programs about animals are amongst the most brutal television you can watch. As you watch a lion... Not lying down with a lamb, but ripping it to shreds as it hunts and kills its prey. And you would not let your child play next to a snake pit. Not yet, anyway. Shocking as that image is, we cannot comprehend in our fallen, tainted humanity, the possibility of a child being safe with these animals. What Isaiah describes here is something radically new. It is a description of the new earth, the new creation that will come to be when Jesus returns. In chapter 65, he speaks about wolves and lambs grazing together. And in that chapter 65, he writes, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That is the new creation, the resurrected earth that we look forward to. Now, if we are Christians, that is our eternal future. That is where we will live, a new creation. There will be no harm and no destruction, and no sorrow, and no tears, and no death. Glory is our home for eternity. With these uh, terribly distressed people on the news yesterday and on the radio, I just was listening with this in my mind and wanting to speak to them and put my hands on their shoulders and tell them this. That Jesus Christ promises a day when the wolf will lie down with a lamb. Now, that's a powerful image. That doesn't really get me. The stuff that gets me is no more sickness and death and crying and tears and pain. And there will be no zoos. For the animals will roam free and we will be safe. My 10 year old says to us about zoos now Daddy, when you go to the zoo now, there are no animals. That's the modern world, isn't it? But there will be no zoos, nor hospitals, nor terrorism, or fear. And so we cry sometimes, come Lord Jesus. Now, there is a very important verse here. The second half of verse 9. If you've fallen asleep, wake up. It's warm, isn't it? We're being broadcast to the campus. Let's leave the doors open. The second half of verse 9. And remember when and to whom this prophecy was first given. To the people of God in Israel and Judah, God's people in one little nation in God's earth, Verse 9b, to God's people in one little tiny nation in God's earth, somewhere out there in the Middle East. Isaiah says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth one day will be full of the knowledge of salvation as the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Or the earth will be full of people from every nation who have heard and believed in the gospel. And these people from every tribe and nation will live for eternity in God's new creation. Now, I've run into verse 10, which you'll see is a separate heading on the sheet. Here we are. This is the summit of this passage in Isaiah. The nations of the world will come to the Messiah to find rest in his glory. So God said... To this little nation state, 700 years before the Messiah would come and start the ball rolling. The nations of the world will come to the Messiah to find rest in His glory. Verse 10, In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of Him, shall the nations inquire, and His resting place shall be glorious. The nations of the world, Isaiah says, will come to the Messiah to find rest in his glory when, now, it is happening in our time. We are living in that time. We are living in the age when this prophecy is being fulfilled, when the nations of the world are coming to the Messiah to find rest in his glory. When Jesus Christ stands like a signal beacon to the nation's To the peoples of the world, and they turn to him, to his message of salvation, and find rest and peace and glory. Now, it is not simply a divine coincidence. We're getting used to divine coincidences Sunday by Sunday here. It is not a divine coincidence that today, Andrew and Heather and their children have landed here in Chalmers Church from across the sea in China. Things are pretty bleak for us in the West, Western Europe. We know that. I don't need to tell you that. Zia's message to us in the West is a tough and humbling wake-up call. For behind the secular river... may well be God himself. And he says, wake up urgently and trust me, lean on me, do not desert me, even if you are a little remnant. Scotland may well be today, without exaggeration, the most secular nation in the Western world. Wake up, God says to us. Things are bleak for us, we know that. But the kingdom of God, God's global kingdom, is expanding at an unprecedented rate of growth across the globe. The 20th century and the early part of the 21st is the period of the greatest expansion of the Christian church in the history of the world. While Europe and Canada and Australia and maybe the United States is going now to follow have experienced dramatic losses through secularization, South America, Africa, and Asia have exploded in unprecedented ways. Well, you not struck when Andrew stood here. We're going back and there will be three or four hundred people baptized in the church. Is that because their minister preaches more passionate sermons? It's because Almighty God has poured out His Spirit on the land of China. And we rejoice and we relish in that. We are living in the days of great prophetic global fulfillment. The signal, the beacon, the fire that is the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and risen, is being lifted up like never before, and the peoples of this earth are streaming to a Savior for salvation. So what should we do? One, rejoice. Be glad for the nations of the earth. And while we have strength and resources in the church in the West still, should we not with all of our energies pour ourselves out for the nations of the world? While we still have strength and resources in the church in the West, should we not with all our energies in Chalmers Church relish our privilege of looking after for a time People who come from these nations to us that we might send them in the ever increasing rapidity of the revolving door of our church. Should we not lean on more of our young people to go to the nations of the earth where the Spirit of God is rampant? Should we not say to people like Mark and Camilla, Yes, it's going to take you 20 years to learn cultural Mandarin for the sake of 10 years of ministry where the Spirit of God is rampant in the earth. Yes! Now, Andrew and Heather, it is great to have you back. And we do miss you. I I, wrestle increasingly as pastor here with this revolving running door. It's just not fair. But may there be many more who go through that revolving door into this nation and into the nations of the earth. One of our commitments in the coming year as a church is not simply to know what is going on in Andrew and Heather and Sophia and Becca and Mark and Camilla and their children's lives, but is to look through their eyes into the nation of China and be burdened to pray for the nations of the earth that are running like a stream as fast as secularism is running into the West to the beacon that is the Lord Jesus Christ raised. To glory. Verses 11 to 16, no time to look at. All I can do is give you a heading, the gathering of the remnant of Israel from the four corners of the earth. Think back to Isaiah's day in 700 BC, that little tiny pocket of people who didn't bottle it and were faithful, when the Assyrians crowded in. Think of our day in the West, these little pockets of faithfulness and we are small. In the West today, as Christians, one and a half percent of Scots this morning are anywhere near a living gospel church. One and a half percent. We rejoice when we baptize one soul, as Mary said. That's the West. But God will look into the Western world as he looked into Judah and Israel and Isaiah's day. And he will know every single person who was firm in their faith. And he will gather them all in. And he will welcome the billions from the Far East. And the ones and twos from Europe today. Now, of course, don't uh, despair because the Spirit of God may move. But if it doesn't in our lifetime, then we rejoice where it is. And we put an unusually high number of people on a plane. Now, finally, our response to the triumph of grace Uh, That's not my heading. It belongs to John Piper. He has some wonderful sermons on this material. Our response to the triumph of grace. Because grace does triumph in the end. In the very end. And it doesn't triumph until the very end. Until the very end. We're not home yet. Nor anywhere near it. And remember too that where the nations of the world stream to the banner that is the Messiah, so opposition runs as hard against them as they do. It's all the other stuff that our partners cannot see. You know. Our response to the triumph of grace, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Somebody needs to write a song that paraphrases these verses. I'm sure they have. Andrew, you can write one in the next five minutes. It is a glorious chapter, it is a glorious vision. The character of the Messiah and how he rules, the peace, the nations of the world flock to him, the remnant will be gathered. As we close, as we close our series on Isaiah, what is our response? Well, our response is chapter twelve. Chapter twelve says three things. One, Verses 1 to 2, it takes us back to the key message of Isaiah. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. Here's the message of Isaiah. What is the message of Isaiah? I will trust and will not be afraid. If you are firm in your faith, you have nothing to fear. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He will become my salvation. So do not be afraid and be strong and do not depart from God's word. Hold on to it with rigor and tight and lean on him. Walk in his light. And if you lose everything... You have lost nothing worth having. Second, verses 3 to 4. Proclaim the gospel to the nations. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, the nations, proclaim that His name is exalted. Proclaim the banner that is Jesus Christ to the nations. And thirdly, God gets the last word for himself. Simply this, verses 5 to 6, praise God. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is your midst in the Holy One of Israel. Now, let me finish Isaiah with this comment. God is sovereign over the earth. He is no less sovereign over the West than he is over the East. It is marvelous what he is doing there. We rejoice with you that you are there. And if God is behind the advance of secularism in the West, so be it. Your job and my job, our church's job, is to be firm in our faith, to walk in his light, to walk by his word, to love him, To herald the Messiah and to lean on the Lord. Not with all our might, in all our weakness, on all of his strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous chapter in your word. It is as sobering as it is inspiring. It is as encouraging as it is challenging. Thank you if we are Christians here, that the sheer evidence of what is happening in our globe indicates that your promises are yes and amen. They always come true. And Lord, our hearts often cry as we gaze out on this bleak word, not least in the West. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. But there are more people to be reached. Our own nation now here is an unreached people. Help us to welcome in time a flood of people who leave revolving doors from church in the east to come here. Lord, give us a global vision for your salvation plan. Further, the work of the gospel in nations like China and have mercy upon us in this part of your world. Help us to be firm and strong and trusting in our faith. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.